There is no other group of society that we openly discuss to let them die. No one, except for those that do drugs. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Welcome to Stigmatize. Today we're with Chief Tom Sinan. Tom's a veteran of the Marine Corps, police chief for the city of Newtown, Ohio, and a longtime member of Hamilton County SWAT and co-founder of the Hamilton County Heroin Coalition. So you're really a face of the drug epidemic and uh, have become a worldwide advocate and speaker. I mean, you speak all over the country, but you speak all over the world as well. So I just want to thank you for being with us today. Oh, no, thanks for having me. It's an important topic. I'm happy to be here. You've been on the police force for a long time, done a lot of different things in that arena. What prompted you to start this crusade with the drug epidemic? Well, what prompted it all was I watched an entire family die in my community. So I have a small town, just 11 miles east of downtown Cincinnati. It's a small community, about 3,000 residents. And I had seen and dealt with this family for a long time. It was a mother, single mother with three kids. And the kids were young when I first started going up to the house. The mother was dealing with uh, abusing prescription pills and alcohol. And you would go to domestic violence calls or fight calls or drug calls, and you would watch these kids sitting on the couch. And after a few years, you would get to know these kids, get to know the environment. It was a constant call. Well, the youngest brother was the first one to die. He was shot and killed by crack cocaine. And then a few months later, the mother died from abusing alcohol and prescription pills. Then the oldest brother ended up overdosing and dying. He left behind five kids, which were being raised by the grandparents in my community. That still didn't hit me. Um, It's kind of sad to say, but then you kind of saw this coming. And not that you wanted it to happen, but this was kind of almost like destiny. This is what the destiny was for this family. Well, the last brother, what ended up hitting me was I got a phone call at home, and it was one of my officers who said, hey, Chief, Chucky overdosed. That's, we, his name was Charles, but everyone called him Chucky. He overdosed. He was brought back with Narcan. He's down here at the station crying, saying he doesn't want to die. So how do we get help? We didn't have a coalition at the time. Being a small community, we didn't have resources. So I said, hey, uh, kind of hit me up once. It was just like, wow, this is the last of a family. we got to keep this kid alive. I say kid, but he was in his 30s at the yeah. time. Uh, I look at the kid from the first time I was starting to go to the house and the calls. I looked at them all as just kids. But I said, we got to keep him alive, so let's try to find treatment. Take him to the hospital, do something. We'll figure out a way to pay for it later. About an hour later, I got a call back from the officers who said, hey, Chucky's refusing help. Now that I've been involved in this more, I have a better understanding of addiction, and I understand it more now when people don't go to help. It's almost as if succeeding is more difficult than the life that you're living right now with addiction. Because if I'm in that addiction, I'm comfortable with the familiarity. No matter how bad it is, I'm comfortable there. If I succeed with addiction, then I'm expected to continue to succeed. And if I relapse or I quote-unquote fail— now people are going to put that on top of it. So not only is there a stigma of addiction, but then there's a stigma of failing. There's a stigma of relapsing. So now I understand why Chucky refused more so than I did back then. But I said, we didn't have much option. So I said, look, we got to keep him alive for at least one more night. So let's take him to jail. So my guys took him to jail and we accomplished our mission. We kept him alive for one more night. He got out, did what was left of the heroin, did the wash that was left. And the next morning he overdosed and died. 
And that's when I realized I had watched an entire family in my career. I've been there for 26 years. This happened within 21 years of my career. Never could I have anticipated starting off this job of trying to help people, wanting to help people to watch an entire family die, especially from addiction. And it's not like I and the other officers didn't try to help. We did. We tried everything to help. But to see that happen, it really hit home. And I ended up um, struggling with the whole family dying, ended up writing an an article, an op-ed, that went into the Cincinnati Enquirer, where I discussed the family, discussed the calls, the addiction, what I had seen. And basically, it was all about empathy around Chucky and the family. And um, from there, it got quite a bit of attention. And a lot of people reached out and wrote letters and emails and said, hey, let me tell you my story of addiction. Let me tell you my family's story of addiction. And I realized that Newtown wasn't where all the drugs were coming from, but I had people using it. And now i got grandparents raising grandkids. So I have three generations of people impacted by addiction. But again, it's not the drug dealer standing on the street corner of Newtown. So I thought, man, if it's not coming from Newtown, but it's still impacting here, and it's impacting other regions, uh, other areas, why don't we come together and form this this group, this coalition. So I reached out to the police chiefs of Hamilton County at first, and then they said, yeah, let's get law enforcement together. So law enforcement was easy. We were all like, yeah, let's come together. And we started to. And then I reached out to Greg Hartman, who was the president of the Hamilton County Commissioners at the time, and said, look, this is impacting us all. Whether it's sold in one place or not, it's being used everywhere and it's crossing borders. We're the only ones in their jurisdiction. People that are addicted or drug dealers don't know. They don't care. So we need to come together. And he said, hey, there's a plan from Interact for Health on let's do harm reduction, interdiction, treatment, and uh, prevention, and let's come together. So we started off with nine members, and five years later, we now have about 100 people, members, organizations, groups all involved in the coalition. But it started with that, that last of the family overdosing and dying. Truly amazing. So I would say that you're very progressive in your approach to this whole thing. You want to get people help instead of incarcerating them. Well, look, man, I've been a cop for 26 years. Um, I did undercover drug work when I first started. I've been, I was on SWAT for 10 years. I did the drug raids. And after a while, and then talked to the family, dealing with that family, there was many times we took them to jail on drug charges and taken other people to jail on drug charges. And what I've come to realize is that someone just sitting there with an addiction, going to jail, doesn't work. You cannot punish addiction out of someone. You have to start treating it as the mental medical health condition it is. And I'm not saying that just to push it from the law enforcement onto the medical or medical health field. One, they have the tools. Two, it is a mental health condition. So why is law enforcement dealing with it? Look at my tools that I had to deal with the family. I've got a gun, taser, and handcuffs, and my, my option is jail. Mm-hmm. What, what that limits my response to that someone's dealing with the brain. So it really forced me to change watching that family die, knowing that we tried everything we could from trying to get social services, trying to get them into treatment, take them to jail. I mean, the last option was take him to jail, and he still got out and died. So I started realizing that jail for those addicted is not the, the answer. I'm not saying I have the answer. I'm not saying it's the complete opposite. All I wanted to do was start this conversation of saying, if we can't punish addiction out of someone, can we think of other ways of doing this? Can we come together as a community and maybe some of its mental health? One third of those who have an addiction have a diagnosed mental health, uh, a diagnosed mental health issue. That's just the ones that are diagnosed. When we talk about the family that I dealt with, not every family is like this, but this family dealt with addiction from the parent. 
So there's a cycle of addiction. There's some people who get started when they go to the dentist or hurt their back. So that's another part of this. So to just carte blanche addiction and say that the only way to view it is a crime and put somebody in jail is not working, number one. When people say that we're enabling people, my response, number two, would be back. We are enabling people by putting those addicted and having them just sit in jail and not getting treatment, not getting help for that addiction, not getting the mental health uh, help that they need. So part of this is us as a society. And until we change our view, then we're going to continue to have these issues that are, that are impacting society, the emergency response from first responders, the cost of money. It was estimated, I think, last year, $500 billion on addiction spent. That's zero money in returns. That's just spent on the front end. And yet we still have this attitude of the only way to deal with this is put somebody in jail. And all I'm saying is that hasn't worked. Let's try to figure something else out. It's truly amazing. And I don't have the stat in front of me, but a a huge percentage of people that are in jail, we just talked about this, are there for some sort of, whether it's a drug charge or they hurt somebody or killed somebody while on drugs. And our, our country is so about incarceration rather than rehabilitation. Yeah, you don't see this in Europe. And we always no. say in law enforcement, about 80% of the crime is drug-related. Is someone who's either doing prostitution, they're stealing to maintain that addiction. And that's not even taken into account the, the people dealing the drugs. So in a lot of this, people think it it's just the addicted. It's just a choice. It's just their problem. Hey, the demand dictates the supply. I disagree with that. I think especially when we're talking about addiction and drugs, the supply has dictated the demand. There weren't people on the street asking for fentanyl or car fentanyl. That is something that the supply introduced to get more people addicted, to make people come back more and spend more money. Look at methamphetamine. I was just watching a Senate hearing, and they were talking about the cost of crystal ice coming in from Mexico. The, the cost has actually gone down, but the potency has gone up. What other product do you put on the street that you actually lower the price? So these drugs are on the street, they're cheaper, they're more powerful, and it's that supply that dictates demand, not vice versa. And when people say, well, wait a minute, if I was in the business world, I would tell you that demand always dictates supply. I I say no to that because, like I said, I'm on my 10th version of iPhone. I never asked for the first. Beanie Babies and Cabbage Patch Dolls, man. People beat each other up over Beanie Babies and Cabbage Patch Dolls. No one asked for stuffed animals to be this hot-button topic, but the market pushed it out. I go to Starbucks every day, spend $3.25 on Starbucks. No offense to Starbucks, but it's not the best taste in coffee. But I got to have Starbucks. If I don't have Starbucks, I get a headache. I don't feel good. It's like my day's ruined. Just think if Starbucks was a crime. Just think if Starbucks was 50 to 10,000 times more powerful than what it is, which that's what the synthetic opiates are doing, what would you do for your Starbucks? And what would the answer be? If it was a crime, if drinking coffee was a crime, it was 50 to 10,000 times more powerful than what it is now, and I'm sitting in jail, I don't get treatment, I'm not, no one's helping me heal my brain, no one's teaching me how to cope with triggers, with all the other responses, with other people that are drinking coffee. All of a sudden I get out of jail, what's the first thing I'm going to do? go to Starbucks. And then people are going to go, why couldn't you do a better job of making a choice? So some of this, it goes back to the brain and the supply and demand. Look at sugar, diet, diabetes, smoking, all these things that the market put out on the street and then people got addicted to. And the response from the market is, it's your fault. You made the choice. Well, no, you put it out there and you made it addictive. Cigarettes, 
was this great thing when it first came out. There's no harm, no addiction, no whatever. And now we find out that the, that company, the organizations, the tobacco companies lied. We're finding the same thing with Oxycontin. They Purdue, lied. Purdue, Purdue Pharma, Pharma, yeah, Carson, absolutely. All these companies lied about it. But what do we do as a society? We blame the user and go, you're at fault. And I'm saying, well, wait a minute. Do, is there some accountability? Yeah, let's hold you accountable so that you get help and get treatment. But this isn't all on them. The onus isn't just on the person using. There's some responsibility by these companies who did it for the same reason that that kid selling on the street does it, money. So who's right and who's wrong and who's better and who's not? I have a lot more compassion for that person that's addicted and who's trying to get help or wants to get help, doesn't know where to turn, than I do that person that did it just purely out of greed. Absolutely. So what is your thought on decriminalization? Are you a proponent of decriminalization? I have an open mind. I'm, I don't know if I'm one way or the other. So there's pros and cons to all this. There are some people who need, who benefit from jail. We've, we've got a person that we're dealing with now numerous times through treatment, numerous times in halfway houses, numerous times trying to get help. And we are so concerned. This is over years. So probably... That they've been doing it since they were 12, and they're in their 20s now. Mm. Our fear is that we tried everything, and we're afraid this person's going to die. So now the option is six years in prison, and maybe that's the best thing for this person. So I can't say that I'm completely for decriminalization because um, if someone needs that help, and that's what can help them, then if we take that tool away, then that becomes a problem. The issue I have with the criminal side of it, with addiction, though, is that when it's a crime and it remains a crime, now we, the system, we, the people, are creating part of the problem because now that person has a felony on their record. They have difficulties getting a job, a house. So we now are part of the cause and more of the problem because now this person wanted to get help, they got the help, but they have this criminal charge attached to them, and it's almost like we, we dig the pit for them, and now they're in this pit and they can't get out. So if we're talking about decriminalization, Maybe that is when you get through that part of it. Maybe there's treatment in the jail. Maybe you go through a program. You go into recovery after that, and then your criminal charge gets off. I'm good with that. And I think you're starting to see some legislation go that way. The argument on the other side to legalize it or decriminalize it, you're looking at more of a harm reduction. If someone doesn't have to buy from a street dealer, and they can go to a place like if you're talking about in Europe— some places either you can buy your product and use it in a, in a clinic where someone's watching over you. Uh, Spain does this. So Spain had a big problem with um, needles all over the park, 20-some thousand needles, people, several hundred people overdosing and dying. So they said, well, wait a minute. This is really impacting the rest of the community, the rest of society. Let's open up this clinic, and you can come use your drug there. We'll have a treatment center on the second floor if you want to go. If not, we will make sure you don't die. So the 20 years they've been doing it, they've had zero overdose deaths in those clinics. Zero. They dropped a needle, what they call junk, out from 20-some thousand to a few thousand a year. So they really reduced the impact on society. So when I look at it from that argument, me personally, I look at, can we reduce the impact on other people? And then that becomes a legitimate discussion. Uh, We would have trouble here in the United States because we do have this right and wrong mentality. We have this philosophy, if you do something wrong, you have to be punished for it. Where they're saying, look, we're going to get away from the the doing wrong thing, the sin thing, the the good or bad, and we're just going to say, if you're doing this, 
come here so that we don't have an emergency response. You're not overdosing in public. You're not doing things like what we saw here, people using the bathroom and buildings or homeless. Mm -hmm. You now have a place that you can go, get cared for, and it's not impacting the rest of the, the community. So I guess where I come down on all of it is I'm in the middle. It depends on the person, depends on the circumstances. And if we have different avenues and many avenues, then I think we have a better success. It's not one or the other. We always want to narrow it down and say it's this or that. It's left or right. It's right or wrong. And I say, no, it's none of that. It's in the middle. Let's find out what works for the best for that person. That one person we're dealing with, it's got to be, they've got to go to prison or else they're going to die. These, some people, we've got to give them into a clinic to where they, if they're going to do drugs, they do it in a safe manner. They don't overdose and die. And the other impact that we got to think about and talk about is the impact on the family. And when we talk about these individuals, it's easy for society to discount the individual. When you think about who's attached to an individual, it makes it much tougher. So I've been over the, stood over the bodies of people who have died. And like I tell people, when you stand over the body, standing next to you is a mother, father, brother, sister, son, or daughter who will forever grieve that person. So you can't discount the one because there's always a group of people attached to them. I have mothers that come in my office shaking from grief from the, their child being lost. If I look at those kids as kids, imagine a parent. I don't mm. care if you're 50, 60 years old. Your parents always look at you like you're a five-year-old. And that's always what they see when that, that kid's gone. Had a father beg me to go to over the Rhine to find his daughter. He did. He was going door-to-door and over the Rhine so that his daughter wouldn't die. So when you look at the impact on society in the group as a whole, then you start realizing, wait a minute, maybe it's not right or wrong. Maybe I do want to find a way that we can reduce the impact on the family, the individual, and the community as a whole. This is back to decriminalization, but the rest of the world seems to be way ahead of us in the way of rehabilitation versus incarceration. There was a, a study that was done. I'm not sure what country it was, but they basically decriminalized everything and the, you know, the crime rates just dropped significantly. The drug, the drug arrests and drug crimes and what they did was pretty simple. They took these individuals and asked them, what do you want to do with your life? And if somebody said, I want to be a mechanic, they got them a job as a mechanic. And they said, as a country, we'll pay the first year salary to try and get this in the mainstream and ease the burden and help educate all the employers. And so, you know, one guy wanted to be a dairy farmer so they could bought him a cow. I mean, it's, it's very simple stuff, but you're able to get these people into a rehabilitation and in a life that they want. And guess what? they're not involved in crime anymore because they were never given a chance before. So what do you think the chances are that that ever happens in this country? And I'm not really talking about decriminalizing, but getting people where they where they should be in their life and giving them a chance to, to live a better life, period. Yeah, so that comes down to ideology. And when you go to Europe, um, when I was there, it's a, it's a lot of what we call socialism here. They don't look at it as necessarily socialism as much as if part of my society is hurting or having problems or struggling, and I don't help them, then they take from the people that are doing good. So in other words, they look at it as if someone's doing bad or hurting, it's going to hurt everybody else. So if I can get everyone on the same playing level, or at least close to it, if we can help each other out, then we as a whole end up being better. So the United States has a, a different ideology and, and probably rooted from when we first broke off from England. We're very individualized, capitalism. Um, it is, I work for my money. 
I work for a living. I have my goals. I reach my goals and you do your thing. And whatever you're doing is on you. And don't impact me. And I'm not saying one's right or wrong. It's just that's the ideologies. So I'll go back to when you're asking decriminalize or not decriminalize or ideology or not ideology. My thing is it's it's really in the middle again. It's not one or the other. They both have the pros and cons. If we can find that middle ground, then we actually satisfy what we're trying to do. You can still have your individualism. I can still be responsible for my actions. I can hold other people. I don't like the word responsible when we're talking about addiction. I like accountable, and accountable meaning that if I succeed through treatment, even if it took me eight times, there's pride in that. I accomplished a goal. I accomplished something extremely difficult, which most people couldn't accomplish. If, you, if you're sober and think that you can go through recovery and it'd be easy for you, you're wrong. So I have a lot of respect for people who make it through recovery, and it's that pride. But when it comes down to those ideologies and one looking at it from a society as a whole and looking at it as individuals, and, and now that you say it, it makes me think about the coalition is out to what we're doing is we're bringing this community together saying these individuals that are having the biggest impact on community, if we can get them from revival to recovery, the minute we revive them, they can get into treatment, long-term care, long-term support. If we, the system, can help them along the way, in the long run, our vision is it helps us as a community because now that person is back into society, they have a job, and that's probably what they're doing in these other countries. You have a job, now you're paying taxes. Now you are not, quote unquote, a burden to society. Now you are a positive member, and you are producing for society. And we're taking that concept with the coalition and trying to make that happen on a recovery end. And it's one of the things Denise Treehouse, who's the president of the coalition now, president of the commissioners, fantastic leader, tremendous leader, one of the most, I respect the heck out of her. And that's what she said at the last meeting. Look, we've been working on this emergency. Let's work on the back end so we can start getting more people in recovery. The pushback we get from some is, look, you are a burden to me. And because you're a burden to me, I think you should be punished for that or stay away from me. Or if you just die, I'm good with that. Which when we talk about that, and I hear that I heard it a lot when we first started. I don't hear it as much, although it kind of resurfaced a, a few weeks ago, which was kind of shocking. But it really bothers me when people say, just let them die. There is no other group of society that we openly discuss to let them die. No one, except for those that do drugs. I've been on calls where a person was a, it was a fourth or fifth DUI. They hit a telephone pole. Not once did society tell me to let that person die. I went on an attempted suicide run 12 times. Not once did society tell me to let that person die. Matter of fact, they said, you should risk your life to save theirs. But this is the only group that we openly have a discussion for this. And to me, it's wrong. From a law enforcement perspective, I should not be asked to let any group just die. What we should be trying to do is keep them alive, give them the avenues and the approaches, give them support. I'm not saying there's not accountability on their end. There is and hold them accountable to get towards that end goal, but let's make sure we help them with that. So getting back to your original question, it's probably a mixture of both. There's got to be some of that individualism, because with that is pride. With that is hard work. You learn the lessons of life, uh, vulnerability, resiliency, and that stuff when you're getting recovery that you'll need. You'll need to be resilient. You'll need to be determined. You'll need to be vulnerable. You'll need to understand that you're going to fall back sometimes, 
and then that you got to get back up. So that individualism and that accountability, that's what I think is right. But when we to take in a segment from Europe is we should build a community that helps that avenue, make it a little bit easier to make it easier for that person to get in recovery and stay in recovery. In the long run, that helps all of us by reducing the impact of addiction. And if we just support somebody, help them get a job, even if it means spending some money, that's that's going to help everything in the future. They're going to continue to be a, a positive member of society, taxpayer. But the way we look at it is that's going to be so much cost to do that. Yet it's costing us $500 billion. Did you say annually? Yeah, on the front end. Yeah, on, yeah, on the front end. So I don't know. It's just, it's, and this could be a whole conversation, but it's just not rocket science. And we just need to, we need more people like you to get out in front of this and, and try and get government, which is the next thing I want to talk about, to give us some some leeway and some support. Are you seeing any improvement in our legislation on helping addiction? Yeah, you're seeing it from the state level. There, There's actually a bill in there talking about new sentence, drug sentence reform, um, reducing some of the penalties because they're realizing there's people who get into recovery and there's people who want to get jobs and are past the drug addiction part and are into recovery, but they're having trouble getting housing and they're having trouble getting jobs. And they're realizing that's triggering them to come to relapse at times. So there's been, uh, there's talk and there's work on from the state side to, to do some drug sentence reform. You still will be held accountable. Treatment would be an option more than jail. Let's get away from the felonies, do more misdemeanors so that you have an opportunity to work again. You're seeing it on the federal level. Um, I just signed off. I'm with the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, which is an international organization. I signed on to a letter encouraging Congress to redo their sentence reform, which they're working on also. You see a lot, especially on the Congress side. It is really a bipartisan issue, and there's a lot of people who are working on it because there's not a congressperson or senator who's not impacted by addiction. If you're east of the Mississippi, it's probably fentanyl. If you're west of the Mississippi, it's probably methamphetamine. If you're south, it's probably a mixture of everything, and then let's add cocaine into it. If you're on the southern border in Arizona, you're catching everything. So there's not an area in the country that's not impacted by drugs or addiction. So you're seeing this bipartisanship from Congress. And I commend Congress for really taking the leadership on this. The STOP Act, the CARA Act, the CARA 1 and 2, 2.0. There's a lot of work that's being done on that side. There's day-to-day people who we don't see with the DEA, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, Department of Justice. These people are working every day trying to keep drugs out, fentanyl out, trying to keep some of these deadly drugs out of the country. So the day-to-day people, the Congress, locally you're seeing it. I think from the president's side, you're you're seeing this willingness to take these small steps to try to do something, which is more than is what's been done before in the past. I just have been very vocal about encouraging the president to take that big step. And that big step would be to declare the opiate epidemic a national emergency. And not just because of opiates. Only because of opiates right now is what's causing the immediacy of death. It's causing the tens of thousands of people to die right now. The thing with that is if he declared a national emergency for the opiate epidemic, it would literally change all addiction. It would change the way we view and deal with all addiction just by saying that. By saying, let's stop treating this all as a crime and let's bring in health and human services. Let's bring in the mental and medical health community. Let's see if we can start reducing addiction from the brain instead of trying to punish it. When the president gets to the point where he's able to do that, 
where he feels comfortable doing that, we shift how we view and deal with all addiction forever. And that would get us away from chasing all these different addictions from a lot of people talk about, well, you're just focused on opiates. No, man, I've gone through cocaine, crack, marijuana, acid. None of that stuff's gone away. It's still all there. The problem is that the opiates are causing such immediacy of death, the mass numbers of death. And I'm not saying what we did in the past was right. I'm not saying we shouldn't have done things differently. But what we should use this as is a catalyst to change the way we view and do a, deal with all addiction. And if the president did that, Congress, I think, would support. State legislators would support. I think the mass, the mass majority of the public would support the president coming out and declaring something like that. And I envision it as being a comprehensive plan. It is part of the border. We have to do more from stopping drugs coming into the legal ports. Most of the drugs come into legal ports. But if we shut that down, we got to make sure that the unsecured parts are secured. we got to work on this backwards from getting recovery, treatment, and the infrastructure in the United States. Most of the, the drugs coming through are not produced in the United States. They're outside the United States. But if we shifted it to this mental medical health system, we build our infrastructure for treatment and, and recovery on the inside. We build up our infrastructure on the border, both from the legal port of entry, because here's the thing. It's a numbers game for cartels. If there's a million people crossing the border, I send 10,000 trucks come through. You catch five of my trucks, I'm still about 95%, 98% got through. So we close that down, but then we have to have the foresight, because here's what we've never done with drugs before. Had the foresight to be flexible or look at it differently, or challenge ourselves to be different with it. So if we close down that legal part of the border, and then we start building up the infrastructure to make sure it doesn't cross the border, which if I would rather go through the unsecured part, because it's going to be more difficult for them to get large numbers of drugs through, it's going to be easier to spot them than it is the millions of cars coming through. But if we could close that down too, then we now start controlling supply and demand at the same time. And this is something that the President of the United States can do. I have a lot of confidence that he can do it. And I'm not saying this out of criticism. I truly believe that the President of the United States could shift the way we view and deal with addiction forever just by coming out and saying that. You think we're close? I, I think we're taking baby steps. I think we're taking baby steps. Um, I'm hopeful. I, I think more so in and unfortunately, it's taken hundreds of thousands of people dying. I think something around from 1999 till now, over 500,000 people have died from addiction. It shouldn't have taken that long. There were 72,000 last year. Um, I actually wrote the president a letter asking him to declare an emergency, and I put in the letter, how many is it going to take, 75, 80, 90, 100,000 people? I think we're starting to see it more so, and I think we're closer than we've ever been. I just think it's going to be a matter of, does someone have the political... Um, kahunas to be able to say, you know what, my base, I'm telling you, if you're a conservative, it benefits us to be able to get people in recovery. If you're a liberal, it benefits people to get into recovery. If we can start doing this and if the president can get the kahunas to say, you know what, I'm going to stand up, I'm going to do the, I'm going to be the first one to declare his addiction a mental medical health condition, then it shifts everything. Right. Then we start opening up doors. Um, just think about when Kennedy talked about the moon, when we talked about curing polio. That's the the belief I have in a president that they can literally shift the conversation in a country. I mean, talk about the moon. That was something that was it's literally out of the world. People right. go, there's no way we can get to the moon. And Kennedy said, I want to be in the moon in 10 years. And it galvanized an entire industry. I think if President Trump stood up and said, I want science, the medical community, to work on medicine or a technique that can help heal 
or reduce the impact addiction has on the brain, that would open up science and research. I want grant money to go to them. I want to figure out how can, look, man, we're not going to stop drugs coming in through the country. It's coming through the mail right now. We can't stop that now. We're never going to stop addiction completely. We want to be able to do as much as we can to reduce the impact, meaning people dying, families suffering, people not having jobs, the the community that's not addicted being impacted by tax money. If the president could stand up and say, this is the goal, this is where I want it going, do the research and science, start healing the brain, then we accomplish all this, and then we stop punishing addiction, more people stay alive, we stop spending $500 billion on the front end, we get people back into society productive, and we become a healthier, happier, more productive society. I know it seems idealistic, but it's actually... No, it seems realistic. It's a complex issue, but it seems so simple in in its ideology. Right. So I have, a, I have a question that I've been asked a bunch of times, and I'm sure you've addressed it too, but it's a safety issue with a lot of people, and I've seen petitions out there. And so when somebody gets, when they overdose, and the police and the life squad come, they administer Narcan, person comes back, why are they not charged with a crime or forced to go on like a 72-hour hold? So it's a legitimate question. And it's one thing that we struggle in law enforcement. So if you've consumed your drugs, it's hard for me as a police officer to arrest you for drug abuse because I don't have the evidence. It was used. Some people will say, well, why don't you go get them tested? Well, in order for that to happen, I got to go get a search warrant. I then got to take you into custody. I then got to take you to a hospital, draw blood, submit that evidence, have that evidence tested. So we're looking at one, logistically, it's not practical. The cost is not practical, especially if it's a misdemeanor charge. Uh, If it was just a misdemeanor drug possession charge, am I going to go through all those steps to charge you, which at the time, you won't be arrested right then. So you'll be charged later on down the road, which means you still walk away. So that ends up becoming difficulty. So a lot of times we'll arrest people off of a drug paraphernalia if we can prove that they actually possessed it, not near them, that they possessed it. So it's one of the frustrations from law enforcement is you're going to this thing where someone overdosed, you know they used an illegal drug, but there's not a lot you can do. There's legally not a lot you can do. So you end up having to walk away. And when we talk about first responder fatigue, First responder fatigue isn't that a cop or a firefighter or EMT or a nurse or a doctor's tired. That's not what it is. They feel helpless. This might be the second, third, fourth time that they want to go revive somebody. And as a first responder, I want to save people's lives. That's why I got into the job. 99% of the cops, firefighters, nurses, doctors want to make a difference. When someone gets up and walks away after they were pretty much dead, you get frustrated. And you say, well, wait a minute, I went out of my way to save your life and you don't care about yourself. Part of that's a misunderstanding of addiction. People do care about themselves. It's just when they're under the influence, their brain's not working properly. The frontal cortex of the brain has been shown to slow down at at times shut down with how severe the addiction is. And that's the part where you make decisions. So literally the person that's addicted, especially depending on the severity of it, and let's not even include mental health. Let's just talk about addiction right now. Now they're just going off the survive part of the brain where all I'm doing is trying to just survive. And those who are in addiction talk about, I'm not going to get high anymore. What I'm doing is not to get sick. Right, exactly. So that person gets up and walks away. The frustration from law enforcement is, I tried to help you, you didn't want to help yourself. Some of that's misunderstanding, but I'm going to still say that their feeling of frustration and helplessness is legitimate and needs to be taken into consideration. 
One of the things I've been pushing for probably close to three years now and working with state legislators is civil commitment. Now, I've gotten a lot of pushback at the beginning. I'm starting to get a little bit more support. And my thought behind this is, one, we talked about the decriminalization. It doesn't do any good for me to charge somebody with a crime because then they get that felony, they can't get the job, can't get the house. But I don't want someone just to walk away, especially with fentanyl or car fentanyl, because that's dangerous to them. If you're behind a wheel, it's dangerous to the public. If you overdose in public, it's dangerous. If that needle's sitting out there with fentanyl, a kid could pick it up. So it's still dangerous. But I want to find a way that I can start getting you into the system and make sure you don't walk away and die. So that's where the civil commitment comes in. If we could civilly commit people, and I'm not looking at short term. You brought up 72 hours. This is part of the discussion we had. My concern with 72 hours is it's almost like you sit in jail for three days. Did I do anything for your addiction? No, I I probably just kept you clean for three days, but I actually probably made it worse for you because now if you go out and do the same dose you did before, you'll probably die. Absolutely. So what I'm looking at is an entire system built around civil commitment that literally shifts it from the criminal section to the mental medical health side. And my thing with civil commitment is kind of like Casey's Law in Kentucky. Instead, of, they have a parent that can do this. I want parents. I want other people, adults. I want first responders to be able to go to a court or bring this person and say they just overdosed. I brought them back with Narcan. They're basically dead. I revived them. I don't want them to die. I want you to have a doctor assess them. If that doctor says this person needs inpatient treatment, they get secured and civilly committed right there. If that person can do intensive outpatient they're still civilly committed, but they're able to walk away with the beginning of their treatment. If that person is not uh, capable or not meets the level of civil commitment, then they don't. But my thing with civil commitment is that you do that long, that beginning treatment, you get in the middle support, that long-term treatment, and then recovery. And then here's my thing with civil commitment. If you're under civil commitment and you relapse and fall out, now you get picked back up, but you're not getting charged with a crime. You're getting charged again with civil commitment, and you're going right back where you started. So it gives you the opportunity, instead of starting from zero, you start right back where you were with the people that you were and continue on that treatment as long as that treatment works for you. If not, the doctors can adjust it. But it gives someone a system now, when you fall off, you're not punished for falling off. Matter of fact, you're helped and supported. You start right back where you started from, and then we get you all on the back end with jobs. We have 65 companies, I think it is, in the greater Cincinnati area that's second chance employers that are higher people with addiction. And if you relapse, many of them say, as long as you get back into treatment, we'll hold your job for you. So why not use civil commitment to do this? One, we're saving lives. We're taking the burden off first responders. We're taking the burden off families. Now uh, families feel helpless because they don't have a place for their their loved one to go. Civil commitment helps fix that. The issue is going to be is how do we define that emergency part of it? Where do they go and where's the system? So there's been talk of stability centers, hospitals. Um, can we use some of the current systems we have? So there's some logistics we got to work out. But I would say more now than it has been in the past couple of years, there's more support and openness to civil commitment. We just have to get the legislators to make it a priority and, and get it turned into actual law. We've had a great conversation about mental health so far, which is a big part of this show. First of all, I can't imagine how difficult your job is. How do police officers, first responders, and people that are in this every day, how do they take care of their mental health? Because you guys have to be, you got to be on point, but you talked about fatigue. What do you guys do to keep your hearts and minds healthy? I think that is becoming an important topic that we're starting to to touch on. There's 
I don't know the exact number, but I think more officers die from suicide than actual assaults. So a law enforcement suicide, first responder suicide has been significant, and we've seen it in this region. Um, we've been hit hard by people that we know. It is difficult going into these situations. And again, a lot of it's you don't have the tools. Here in law enforcement, I'm expected, it's funny that I'm the quote unquote face of this because I have zero medical training, zero addiction training. The only thing I have with my tool belt, it's like Batman. All I got is a gun, taser, and handcuffs. And yet I'm expected to deal with mental health, domestic violence, social issues, racial issues, economic issues, poverty, and then let's add addiction on top of it. So somehow I'm supposed to deal, not just me, but every law enforcement officer or first responder or fireman, EMT that goes to a house is supposed to deal with these issues and solve them right then. These are long-term complex issues. So I think we're starting to see that we've been taking the burden of this. And I think part of it is we have to, first of all, within our industry say, look, I'm bothered by this. I'm upset about this. I need to talk to someone. So we've been more open in the past couple years of having incidents where if something bothers you, checking up on each other. We're a lot more open about going to see a professional. We need to do more of that and create that environment because there's still too many law enforcement and firefighters that are that are committing suicide. I had it with one of my guys who was investigating, investigated several child rape cases. You know, that impacts you. So they came to me and said, you know, look, man, I'm having trouble sleeping. This definitely got to me. So you know, it was it was easy. We just, hey, man, we'll pay for it all. We'll take care of it. And we did. And that now that that officer feels supported, they feel like um, I went and got help, and others around them can now see that that person got help, and it's okay to talk about these issues. Um, one of the first calls I ever went on was a, a car accident, and a woman died in my hands with her kids watching. And when I went back to the station, no one asked, hey, are you okay with it? Um, what's going on in your head? Do you sleep at night? Anything like that. It was all expected as part of the job. Mm-hmm. I think we're seeing now that yeah, you signed up for this, but it doesn't mean that we can't support you in the long term and in the long run with some of these issues and that you should not take the burden on this. It, we're not there yet, and there still needs to be a higher priority of making mental health and physical health uh, a priority for those in law enforcement. The Attorney General, Mike DeWine, when he was Attorney General, really made this a priority, and there was mandatory training that we did online that talked about some of this stuff. So th- you're starting to see that shift, but you got to look at we as first responders are type A personalities. I'm, we're probably the opposite end of those addicted who are type A too. We all have our things that we, we, we thrive on. And it's not necessarily all the action. It's a matter of we really honestly believe we can fix problems. And then when we can't fix that problem, we become helpless. When we become helpless, then we become internal. When we become internal, then we start having issues. So we're still a long way to go, but we're starting to change and shift, recognize it's a problem, offer resources, Talk about it more, get it more in the open, and then encourage people to do something. That you talk about stigma. There's mental health uh, stigma within law enforcement, the military. I think we're starting to change that now and saying, look, stigma's stupid. Why are we attaching just this mental I- ideology? There's definitely an issue here. Let's work on it. That was the the next thing I wanted to talk about as we wrap up. A little more on stigma. What does it mean to you, and where do you see it? Aside from just what you just talked about within law enforcement, but just out in the general public, how is it, do you see the effects of stigma? Well, stigma holds us back. I mean, and just think about it when we just talked about the president, I'm sure one of the things is probably not internal, his own stigma, but the stigma from the base or from the political base is saying, look, this is my opinion of addiction. And that is the stigma attached to it. And like we talked about earlier, 
one of the biggest issues with this, and I'm not saying we go one way or the other, but as long as drug use is viewed as a crime, stigma is legitimized. Because you're always going to give that other group the avenue to say, well, look, it's a crime. You shouldn't have done it. You made a choice. You committed the crime. Pay the price. So as long as that's there, we still have that issue of, a st- of stigma. So we got to overcome that. But then there's substigma. There's stigma within certain communities of users. The heroin user was always the junkie. And there's even stigma within the user. There's stigma within the recovery and treatment side. Medically assisted treatment is the answer. No abstinence is. No faith-based is. There's stigma within law enforcement. Wait a minute. Why are you advocating for these people that committed a crime? Just stick them in jail. There's stigma within medical community. I'm a doctor. How can I help somebody that doesn't want to help themselves? And the response is, what about people with diabetes who you told to not eat bad anymore, and they still do? So there's all this stigma, which, to be quite honest, the stigma is not accurate. No matter what angle you're looking at, stigma is just your personal view, the way you're viewing the world. And when you just view the world from your eyes, what do you see? Only what you choose to see. It doesn't mean you're right. It doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means you're choosing to see the world from that one angle. So stigma holds us back. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying anything I'm saying is right or wrong. All I'm wanting to do is open the mind, have a discussion. There's people much, much smarter than I am. And if at least we can have that discussion, maybe someone sitting across goes, wait a minute, did you ever think about this? And I can go, no, I never thought about that. That's what the open mind does. The open mind finds solution. The closed mind doesn't find nothing but stigma. And it, a lot of people get comfortable in the stigma because I don't have to challenge my views. I don't have to give someone empathy. I don't have to root for somebody. I don't have to support somebody. But I always caution with stigma because it's kind of like karma. Sooner or later, trust me, whatever stigma that you put on somebody else, there's a stigma on you that someone's putting on you. So think about that and if we could overcome the stigma, it would open up the doors and we could actually find solutions and, and help reduce the impact this is having on us all. You say that there may be smarter people than you, but you had the guts to write that first article and spawn what you've done in the last five years. So you're really a pioneer in this country and in other countries with your philosophy on getting people help rather than punishing them. So it was an honor to have you here, spend some time with you and keep up the great work. And hopefully you'll come back in the future. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And thanks for everything that you're doing. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.